As a bold man myself, I'm starting to say no to already. That watch wouldn't see even two hours off in the big time. What the hell is he gonna say next? Hey guys, welcome to Must See a Man About a Dog podcast, where I chat to people about anything but platitudes. It's a huge shit sandwich and we're all gonna have to take a bite. Today's episode is all about fitness, ethics of artificial intelligence, and news sources. Come again. I chat with Peter Watson, who's the founder of Watson's Daily, a business and financial markets news blog. Anton Kardasis, a personal trainer and a boxing coach. And Lavina Ramkisun, a trend influencer, strategist, and technologist who speaks volumes about her love for business and technological innovation. My name is Alisa, and I'm your host. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, guys. Especially Lavina, you're joining us all the way from South Africa. That's right. Sunshine. Well, we've got sunshine here too today. I know it's unlikely for England, but here you go. You know, I, I've been doing this. Um, you'll be glad to hear this, Anton. I've been doing an exercise challenge for the last few weeks, and uh, most of it's based outside. Um, it has not rained once since I've since I've done this, and and I'm so pleased. Do you think it was maybe like an incantation? Maybe it was like a sort of sun dance that you've been doing. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, I've been so lucky so far. It just hasn't rained. You know, because I thought, oh, what's gonna what's gonna be like doing all this in the rain? But uh, as they say, you know, some people see rain as uh, you know not a bad thing. They see it as liquid sunshine. Indeed, one of my favourite quotes is, "Those who say sunshine brings happiness have never danced in the rain." But Peter, what what else? Uh, apart from exercising, what else are you up to these days? So I, I write a uh, daily newsletter called Watson's Daily. It helps people to improve their commercial awareness. Um, something to help people uh, prepare for interviews. Yes, commercial awareness, quite a buzzword in law, definitely. Um, this sort of this concept of understanding what goes on in the world and translating and applying this knowledge to your business or your client's business. It's exactly the sort of thing that people think, oh, just leave it. I'll do it again. I'll do it someday. And they never get round to it. And the problem is they then turn up at interview and someone says, tell me about a story you've been following in the newspapers recently and you come up with, with nothing. So, you know, and it's not the sort of thing you can revise overnight. I mean, you can try and wing it, but um, you de- your your chances of getting through are, are far decreased. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, you know, doing this kind of stuff takes a long time to get the to get the knowledge, but it's not hard. You just need to bang away at it every day, you know, do a bit every day. So how did you get into this? So I started a company a few years ago, which was trying to harness my experience in uh, working in the stock markets and also working as a headhunter to try to combine the two things to help people um, get jobs that they wanted, um, particularly in finance. And uh, as part of that, so uh, to try to help people to get the jobs they want and to help to prepare them for interview, I started writing something and it was called Watson's Wi-Fi at the time, which stood for what I found interesting. Um, and then I changed it to Watson's Daily when I had a, an official rebrand about a year and a half ago. It, uh, the way I write as well, you know, I try to write it as if I'm sitting next to you and talking to you and trying to help you to understand what's actually going on and but also to help you to remember 
um, what you know what you read as well because I think that a lot of newsletters just have seemingly random stories on there and you don't know why and and so I try to put it all together in a logical way so that you've got more chance of actually remembering it I sort of try and make it mildly amusing because I'm not particularly straight-laced I'd say uh, it's not exactly laugh a minute there's only so much you can make funny about the Bank of England cutting their interest rates or something but you know I try to where I can so uh, so the idea is it's a painless way of actually improving your knowledge Wow. And how about you guys, Anton and Lavina? How do you discover news on the daily basis? So I think I do a bit of combination of things, um, social media being one of the largest influences in our lives. Um, so I do a bit of that. I subscribe to a few um, e-newspapers, try to uh, watch a little bit of actual television news. Uh, it's become my morning ritual uh, of late. Uh, I'd say yes. Um, unfortunately, social media does seem to be uh, one of the main assets when it comes to, to immediate source just because you know it, it almost feels sometimes a little bit like a 24-hour news broadcast where it just sort of repeats itself over and over so it's it's, fun, it's funny though because i mean i'm you know I, i've done, done a few different talks and things at universities and also at, at companies as well and when i i ask them the question I say look where do you get your news from and i'd say most people say they get it from social media and I think social media is good for certain things, but I I always say to people that, you know, you should never try to get your news from one source because every source, every this is going to sound like I'm some conspiracy theorist, which I'm not, um, but, um, you know, every news source has some kind of bias. Let's say I, I read The Guardian every day, you know, and that's my news source. The thing is, is that, you know, there is bias in The Guardian. It's the same for every every newspaper, really, you know, pretty much. You know, if you try to use a variety of sources, you've got more chance of actually knowing what the actual, you know, guessing what the actual situation is. Yeah, and I think you touched on a, on a very good point as well, Peter, uh, in terms of getting, you know, one sort of source of information. It It's so difficult because uh, my interests sort of vary quite a bit from technology to uh, finance to companies how they run who's the board you know what are the share prices to what's the latest in ai um, so it becomes very difficult to get a central sort of source that can decrypt a lot of it very quickly yeah no you're right you're right and you know you've got to in a way you've, you've got to kind of follow these sources for a while before you actually can appreciate the different nuances they all have because i think once once you appreciate what the biases are what the nuances are you can you know you can try you can try to sort of filter out the noise uh, and get to what are the key points i think you know i get up at four every day i read the times the telegraph the ft the guardian the wall street journal and then i try and boil it down to the the essential business stories and what what's important and I like that the the actual reading is is good, but then there is a cha the challenge of actually trying to put it into some sort of coherent order. So it's difficult, but I actually weirdly enjoy it. You know, the reason why I keep getting up at four to do this thing is because I really believe in it and the way that it can help people to essentially understand the boring news, really get it down to the bare bones and say why it's important. But I mean, having said that, I, I do actually follow Donald Trump on Twitter, uh, <laughs> mainly for entertainment. Value, yes. Because you think, what the hell is he going to say next? 
Well, that that's kind of one of the factors that I have to take into consideration as well, because you know it is very hard to find a news uh, source which is a, objective. Uh, but then when you do kind of look into a lot of the stories that are sort of pushed to the front, you do have you know what has Trump done today is almost like the headline news on a daily basis, and it does feel like to some degree that it, you know um, it, it is just it's a jester kind of performing to the court, and that's kind of the main that's the only thing you can really get from it. Well, he's, he's got to be a journalist dream, though, hasn't he? He is a one-man quote machine. Uh, and also, p- potentially, a very um, a great ambassador for um, older men uh, and, and hair, generally. As a bald man myself, I'm starting to take notes already. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, isn't it? You know, you get lots of celebs out there who say, oh, yeah, I've got this hair. You know, let's, uh, it's like hairdresser to the footballers, whatever. I don't see anyone boasting about being his hairdresser. I don't think anyone's going to take that title anytime soon. No, they're not, are they? They're not going to go, I'm the one that's responsible for that. (laughs) Is it a wig? Is it not? Anyway, talking about artificial things, uh, Lavina, could you tell us uh, the story behind how you got into technology? Okay, um, so mine has quite an interesting uh, bit of cycle. When I finished off uh, schooling, I had applied to a few universities, didn't know which direction I wanted to go, like most of us. (laughs) And um, IT seemed like the new emerging sort of sector. And like two weeks prior to IT sort of doing this boom, I had applied to the university for a psychology uh, degree. And I I had gotten accepted, you know, to do it uh, with a bursary. And I turned it down because IT seemed way more interesting and way more cool at the time. So I spent my next 20 years, you know, doing IT, loving it, fell in love with every aspect of it. Hence, I didn't want to specialize at all. And then I kind of made my journey back to psychology, funny enough. So when I fell pregnant with my twin girls, I had some time on my hands. And that's when I went back to studying psychology, studied uh, a little bit further and specialized in child psychology. And then I thought to myself, you know, how is it possible for me to merge the two worlds that I, I, I seem to have a love for besides health and medicine and you know, spiritual well-being. So I decided to go down a venture of uh, digital psychology and I started playing around in that sector. So gave a few talks at schools and, you know, try to open up kids' minds to different ways of looking at technology, you know, uh, getting them to understand that the core of who they are kind of resonates no matter which platform you're on. Yeah, so that was a bit of an interesting journey and then AI became a thing and then I thought to myself, well, we kind of need to understand the human mind before we understand what we can actually do with AI. So, yeah, I've been sort of having a lot of fun and games along the way. Wow, I feel like the next thing you're going to say is that you're building a robot that can understand people's emotions. <laughs> Not just there yet. But do you feel that do you feel that AI is a force for the good? Because I mean, obviously, you've got some people like I mean, Elon Musk, isn't he? I mean, he he's sort of um, very much a case of saying that it's it's going to take us over, and we've got to be very wary of how it's used. I mean, what do you think? Do you I mean do you think it's a a force for good or a force for evil, and we're all going to end up in Terminator Two? 
and, and, and it's a great question. Um, and uh, at the moment, I've actually just become a, a mentor on AI ethics through uh, the Lighthouse Academy. And I find this field in particular rather interesting. You know, what is the ethics around technology? What's the ethics around AI, the implementation of it? And for me, I've always been a firm believer that you should do something with purpose. You should do something for the greater good. And, you know, that's something that I started off with way back when. And I think it's something of a grounding tool. And yes, there may become a point, uh, you know, given the fact of uh, humans and how we sort of behave and how we overdo things or, you know, um, strip nature of its beauty. Or we have a way of, you know, meddling either too much. So I'm sure that point will come, but I think we're way far off from it. Because the kind of things that people talk about now in terms of AI is just normal predictive analytics. So taking what you have and just making it look smarter. And there's not much intelligence behind that. I mean, the true intelligence comes in, you know, when you can get a robot to look after an entire uh, hotel. I mean, and there's a living example where they tried and tested this in Japan. And everyone there that works there is a robot except for one human. They do everything for you from socializing to cooking to room service to keyless entries and, you know, the, everything. And I think the potentials are there, but uh, I would like to sort of see it go in a more meaningful direction to how we could address the bigger problems that humanity has, you know, like the poverty, like famine. But are they also using it at the moment with... Um you know, trying to find a cure for coronavirus as well, aren't they, I think? Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting. Um, so one of the projects that we did was where we could detect breast cancer in particular earlier uh, than a normal radiography, so through normal CT scans. So they're doing pretty much the same sort of model uh, with regard to the coronavirus where they take your scans of your lungs and they will detect for anomalies of pneumonia or pneumonia-like symptoms. And then that is what alerts them to earlier detection. And I think things like that is fundamental because, you know, your turnaround becomes much quicker. You as a patient can start understanding what you can do. You know, you can isolate much faster. You can change your diet. You ha can change mentality. I think there's just a lot more use in things like that and on the medical side i mean doctors can react differently give you a different course of medication try and alleviate that curve that everyone's hitting at this point or panic it, it is interesting because the general uh, cautiousness about ai does seem to look at the, the more cynical sides of it i mean you know that the whole idea of that sort of playing god aspect has almost been around since you know mary shelley's frankenstein where you know suddenly I think something that's, you know, has its own thinking and has its own way of thought and something that you're not necessarily in control of can just kind of do its own thing. But there, there is very little um, sort of mention, at least in terms of media, about kind of the advantages of, of developing something like that. But it is interesting to hear how it's been adapted. I heard of a gentleman in 2017, it was. I think he was about 27 years old. He bought himself a 3D printer for like $175 and off he went and he started printing prosthetics for p 
people that could not afford it, and he gave it to them for free. I mean, those are, you know, the kind of things that you want to hear. It, it's funny when you mentioned um, 3D printing as well, because it's kind of a prime example of a piece of technology that went from being sort of non-existent to suddenly being in households within the space of a very short period of time. And just shows like how quickly like with technology developing that people are actually able to ascertain this technology and actually able to develop it themselves independently without any sort of funding or, and you know in this circumstance someone actually able to just develop prosthetics for people i mean again relating to corona we've seen examples of people being able to print off masks and actually build, you know provide those to hospitals and just how how effective that's been because then you, you have individuals who are actually able to make such a huge impact because this technology is now a household item. Like it's, it's quite incredible how quickly it's sort of been adapted. At the same time, though, what we're talking about here is using AI as a tool, something that we can use to solve a problem. But how do we step it up to the point that AI solves a problem before it arises and without our input? Being a mentor of AI ethics, Lavina, is that even possible? Okay, it definitely starts off with very controversial, you know, subjects as to where, where do we, from a psychological perspective, uh, start and stop uh, the conversations? And when does it become non-ethical to do something versus when does it become ethical to do something? And I think, you know, it goes back down to the days of what is good and what is bad and what do we define as good and bad and that's all based down to perception and people's thoughts and individual experiences in life that kind of shape them this is an absolutely fascinating area i think that uh you know and i might be wrong but i think that this area of ethics and ai is an absolutely massive area you know and that this will go on for years yeah you you were talking about um ai just then in you know certain scenarios and of course you've got this kind of thing going on for uh self-driving vehicles because you've got to you've got to teach the vehicle not to not to crash into people and then you know there are the ethical concerns like you know let's say you're going along in a car in a in a driverless car and because of losing control you've got a, a woman pushing a, a pram across the road with a baby in it and then you've got um an old man or something walking along the side of the road the car's got to go somewhere where's it going to steer it's going to hit someone is does it hit the does it hit the old man or does it hit the lady taking the baby across the road can it hit the brakes <laughs> well yeah i mean that's what i'm saying yeah ho hopefully hopefully that's what happens rather than you know scoring points or whatever but i do think that you know, those kinds of things are so, so important. And there's a lot of automation, you know, that AI can, can do and can help with. But also you need the thinking as well that goes behind it. Uh, and I think there, that, you know, there may be some really interesting areas for people to go into in terms of employment to look into those kind of areas. Yes, but where do you even start defining how a robot should think? I mean, this is going back to what Lavina was saying about what is good or bad. I mean, would we turn to law for this, trying to act as a reasonable person? Um, but even that is questionable in its own right. And it all depends on the mood that you're in as well. And that's one of the things, yeah, like it, it's kind of one of the issues about all these ethical quandaries is in a lot of cases, there is no correct answer. But when exploring a piece of technology like this, you actually have to almost find an answer. 
and kind of that's that is pushing our, our, our you know, ethical limits really that's kind of starting to explore outside of of what we already understand um, purely so we can almost implement it into a piece of technology and that is a fascinating prospect like we might even be able to understand our own ethics further due to the fact that we actually have to start programming it into you know with the zeros and ones you've basically got to codify human behavior haven't you really and you've got to humanize ai isn't that funny yeah uh, a thought process which is probably a split second when you're behind the wheel suddenly has to be broken down and and uh, analyzed and explored over a series of years potentially absolutely and and anton with your line of work it's uh you know, I'm sure there's an ethical side to it, but it's mostly instinctive, I'd imagine. Yes, uh, that was a smooth transition. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, I, well, I, I since working in the area that, that I work in, I'm at the moment a personal trainer and I've worked as a boxing coach for years now. And I think I, I always kind of gravitated towards that discipline because of that mentality that you have to develop from it and that kind of split second reaction. And Considering I'd studied uh, theatre, I was an actor for a very long period of time, and I think that mentality can sometimes be very brooding, let's say. So, you know, you do tend to analyse and then overanalyse and then overthink everything. And so what interested me about something like boxing was that it actually is trying to promote a way of thinking in which you, you have to react instinctively, you have to kind of react uh, you know, in a turning point. I mean, say, for example, you were to knock a glass of water off a table, you don't have to think about reaching out, grabbing that glass of water. Your body does that automatically for you. You know, you, you have that ingrained into who you are. So the more you kind of overthink and, and the more you kind of analyze it, the slower you're actually allowing your body to react. You know, in, in my standpoint, that, that's, uh, that kind of gets you punched in the face. So, yeah, I mean, with, you know, with my, my clients and, and classes, you know, uh, as much as it is a physical endurance process, it's very much mental. And it's, it's the main reason why I pursued it for so long. I, I wouldn't be exploring it if it was purely for a superficial thing. I think with a lot of people that I've trained, especially those who uh, suffer from anxiety and, um, you know, couldn't be very introverted, I find that the more they kind of adapt to this method or this way of thinking in which they react far more instinctually or they trust their responses, then they start to feel in real life that they don't necessarily have to be so over-analytical about the way they behave in public or in social circumstances. And that starts to create, it alleviates any of that pressure that they, a lot of times people unfairly put on themselves. That suddenly becomes ingrained into your, your mentality. You, you find a way of accessing that natural flow. Um, and where the confidence comes from, realistically, you know. So uh, there is a lot of an idea about ego when it comes to these sorts of things. Don't you think, though, that ego, I, I often used to find with these things, is that people come in and they start, I mean, I, I, I can just use judo as a frame of reference for me. It was my sort of main sport for about, God, about 20 years or something. But with judo, you get people coming in and they all give it the big, you know, mouth and stuff. Um, and you get them on the mat. And then they realize it's actually quite hard work. Yeah, I mean, the people who have the big egos, from my experience, uh, they get humbled very quickly. And, the, you know, if you have a big ego, that's usually the, you know, what you don't want is the antithesis. Those who kind of are a little bit more conscious and uh, in terms of their behavior or their attitude about themselves and their 
they don't kind of mind being humbled in a sense. Like they do feel like the experience is always going to happen. You know, it's got to be a challenge and it's something that you just are going to expect. A lot of the times, as, as much as you would think that you're kind of battling people's egos in a sport like this, in actuality, what I, I feel I'm doing a lot of the time is, is trying to allow someone to actually believe in their own ability. I, I think one of the things about something like boxing is because it is a contact sport, getting struck is a very clear indication that you made a mistake. So, you know, there's, there's no really beating around the bush in that sense. So, you know, you make a mistake and you learn from it and you have to carry on and you have to keep going. And the less kind of emotional weight you provide to that mistake, the easier it is for you to push forwards. And, you know, once you remove that emotional reaction from physical reaction, I think people tend to find that they're a lot stronger than they give themselves credit for. So from that, they actually, you know, will develop a sense of confidence in, in their ability. It's, it's funny what you kind of take away from it. You know, a lot of the times it's not even a physical aspect. Yeah, and this kind of emotional support that you get from your trainer and, and coupled with camaraderie of being in an actual group, uh, do you think that this being lost in the current Zoom sessions? No, definitely. And I, I, I must admit, like, when this coronavirus the pandemic started and you know, quarantine started to take place, um, I was worried for, you know, what the future for my job would be, you know, because I thought, well, maybe a lot of people are going to start doing their home training sessions and they'll think, why do I need a trainer? And in, you know, there'd suddenly be this mentality of, well, I can do it for myself. And um, as time's passed, I've actually found it's been the opposite. I found a lot of people have actually responded and they've been messaging me and they're really chomping at the bit. And I, I miss that interaction. I miss that social interaction. I miss the interaction with the trainer. And a lot of sessions can uh, involve not only myself training the individual, but just talking to them, just trying to find a means of communicating a dialogue the best way for them to actually absorb the information, the best way for them to actually understand and embrace the discipline. And so, you know, I've, I've, I've thought about charging one rate as a personal trainer and one rate as a, as a therapist, because sometimes the sessions do kind of turn into that, you know, and especially after the, the quarantine uh, restrictions have been limited, uh, sorry, lifted somewhat. Uh, I've had people coming back and they've just really just said, like, I've just missed you know, having a session, my own time when I can just talk to you and just, you know, we can have a conversation, say what's on my mind, we've got training done and it won't, and it will feel much more uh, supported in that time. Yeah, they were actually saying that uh, depression is going to be one of the largest uh, known things that we need to openly talk and communicate about irrespective of our ages. It's going to hit everyone on every level to some degree, whether we like it or not. And I think that's, I mean, you know, what you do is is, is pretty important. Well, no, thank you. I appreciate that. And I have to say that I've always wanted to find some sort of profession which didn't um, affect my well quality of life, just really. I mean, that's the thing. And I think social interaction for me has always been an important aspect of that and a natural social interaction not necessarily a forced one uh when this circumstance occurs it, it really pays dividends for me because you really feel like you, you've made that impact it gives you purpose you know it really kind of makes you feel very functional to, to feel like you know, people do actually you know I'm, I'm always surprised to this day when i turn up to the gym or i turn up to a location to train a client and they're waiting for me like that always blows my mind that someone's waiting for me to, to help them, you know, to, tell, to tell them what to do, whatever. You know, it is actually something that I find incredibly fulfilling. So, 
Well, exercise just releases happy sort of endorphins, doesn't it? And uh... right, and I'm 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 their dealer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, can um can we can we get can we get an example? Can you teach us something? Um, it, it, over over the, the podcast, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Well, it has not been tried before. Sure, no worries. Just clear a clear desk away and a couple of tables, make some space. I think the one. The one piece of advice I just genuinely have to always provide to people, which always is the most basic advice, and I think it applies to everything, is just remember to breathe. And I, I know that sounds cliched, but I genuinely, you always see, and I experienced it myself, I remember in my first fight, my first charity fight that I did, uh, I kind of went in all full of uh, confidence. And then the first time I got punched in the face, uh, that confidence disappeared, and so did any of my skill and energy. So... I mean, I turned to my corner man and I caught him with the uh, corner of my eye. And he was just making a, a gesture to me, just saying that I needed to breathe. And he said that he could physically see for the first minute. And that's, you know, a common circumstance that when you're, when you're stressed or when you're anxious, you kind of forget to breathe. You, you shallow breathe or your shoulders get tense, you, you know, you restrict yourself. And if you can't breathe, you can't do anything. You touch on, on an important point there for, uh, for breathing, because uh, funny enough, you know, uh, our bodies always are in two states, either the fright or flight mode, right? And um, it's it's actually known with technology that we are in fright mode. Uh, the way we sit with our computers, the way that we engage uh, with our telephones over, over any kind of digital platform. And, uh, you know, that's also something that I often say is just breathe, like do conscious breathing because it somewhat brings you to the moment and it can actually release and, and, and refocus you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that's the thing. That's one of the recommendations why they say when you're sitting behind a desk is to get up and walk around every 15 minutes or so is because usually by that point, I think you tend to hunch over and you tend to shallow breathe and you're not activating your diaphragm enough. And uh, so you need to get up and stand up straight and walk around in order to activate that again. So it is something that is, is funnily enough, something you have to be conscious of a lot more than you think. It's funny, actually, my wife, she's got, um, I mean, I, actually, I've got a iWatch uh, or whatever um, uh, myself as well. And she said, it's, I, I always think this blows my mind. She says, she says that it's changed her life because she really does do the, you know, when it tells you to stand up, she stands up when you you know when it says you should move around or the the steps and everything she does it religiously and you know for her she's found it it's worked so well you know i was just thinking the other day it's quite funny really because you've sort of got your your watch kind of telling you <laughs> telling you what to do and when to stand up and and uh, when to walk around etc um i mean i i must say i'm, I'm still fairly rebellious uh on, on this front when i'm writing and i'm like Oh no! Look, the watch is telling me to stand up. I'm I'm going to be rebellious and and c continue to sit down. But uh, but in the end, I think the watch does get me because then I do sort of think, well, actually, I feel bad now. Uh, so, <laughs> so I don't want to offend the watch. So uh, you know, I'll just sort of I'll stand up and walk walk somewhere. Would you re do, do you reckon you'd um, react differently to it if the watch actually spoke to you and had a more of a like a personal interaction? Well, that'd be weird. You know what? If it, if anyone came up to me, if everyone if anyone prodded me every fifteen minutes telling me to get up, 
I don't know if my my relationship with them would be very withstanding. Like you'd have to use AI, you know, it'd have to use a lot of AI to sort of increase the emotional its own emotional intelligence regarding the wearer and knowing when the right time was to uh, broach different subjects. Yeah, and not get smashed. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly. Can you watch that though? You have a watch of going. Get up now! Come on! Come on! And then Joe, you know, fifteen minutes later, look, I've waited for you for fifteen minutes. I've, I'm not nagging. I just want you to get up. Just do it now. And then you know, as, as time goes on, getting increasingly sort of annoyed. How many times have we been around friends or families, and they suggestively tell us something, and we're like, "No, what are you talking about?" <laughs> so, so even on those levels, we don't even take it. You know. Uh, and these are with people we care about. So imagine a foreign object. God, that watch wouldn't see even two hours of living time. I think if it said, I've just ordered you a ton of chocolate and now you must get up. So then, you know, I'll, I'll probably consider it then. <laughs> yes, I think that's a good point. <laughs> well, that's probably a good time to end there. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining me today. No, thank you very much. Thanks for having us around. Nice to virtually meet you all. So what have we learned from today's podcast? There's no such thing as unbiased news, so make sure to include a variety of news sources in your reading or just sign up to Watson's Daily. When it comes to AI, we must understand our own ethics before we try to programme technology to act ethically. And fitness is good for your mind and your confidence. Do more of it and remember to breathe. Oh, and who is responsible for Donald Trump's hair? Again, 